Good morning, everyone. It's good to have the Mission View family together today. Today, we're going to continue on in our journey of discovering the Son of Man. And as we approach Mark chapter 3, that's where you can turn in your Bibles. We'll be there in a moment. As we approach Mark chapter 3, we're going to see a unique episode where Jesus' own biological family comes to collect Jesus because they think he's gone crazy. Now, what this does is it brings a reality to us. Some of you are like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. We're going to see it today in Mark chapter 3. But this brings us a reality that there are times that our own biological family members do not see eye to eye with who Jesus Christ really is. Even Mary and, the brother, and, and her sons, the brothers, half-brothers of Christ, they're the ones that are going to come, and they're gonna, they're, we see either a distorted faith, a, a lapse of faith, but we see something going on with the family that they just do not understand the mission of Christ. Now, Jesus was fully human. We've got to understand that. He was fully God, and he was fully human. And so as fully God and fully human, he embraced all the emotions that you and I embrace. So how is it that you feel when someone in your family does not understand who Christ is? See, I believe that Jesus sympathizes and understands every one of our weaknesses, all the concerns, all the, the things that we, have, that we experience in our life. And if you have somebody, if you have an adult child in your family that doesn't know Christ, Jesus understands. If you have a, a spouse, if you have an uncle, an aunt, a relative that doesn't really understand Christ or is not really living for Christ, Jesus understands. He knows it. He knows what we go through. He, he sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. He understands. And even Jesus had to be patient as the Spirit of God worked on his own family's life. And we'll see that today. Well, today, before we get into our passage, I'm going to introduce a couple of people to you, Brian and Teresa Moore, who are going to share a little bit of their story with you. Now, Brian and Teresa have, been, have had their share of struggles, even in the struggle of family, and um, I'm going to have them share that in a minute. But I want you to know that Brian and Teresa are members of Mission View. They are also good friends of Lee and I. We go back a long ways. They were in my first Partners for Life young adult class. Now, I want you to know, based on the gray hair that you see in Brian's head, that was a very, very long time ago. Now, Teresa somehow has been able to ma maintain such a youthfulness. Brian, not so much. But that's okay. We still love him. So with that introduction, I'm going to let you share your story, man. There you go. Let's make sure this is on. Okay, there you go. Hello. Okay. Well, I'm going to kind of read from mine because I don't want to get off. Well, Brian and I began our journey as husband and wife in July of 1982. One of the most difficult things that I struggled with from day one was that I would not be able to bear children to the man I loved so much. 
Brian chose me as his wife 32 years ago, and we knew that if it was God's plan for us to grow our family, he would make a way. We enjoyed eight years of marriage together before we adopted our first child, Joshua. Ten months later, we welcomed our second child, Justin. Two years later, we welcomed our third child, Kayla. We could not have asked God for more. We are so thankful and love them so much. As a chosen mom, I cannot comprehend that I didn't even give birth to these children who are now adults. It seems so natural that they are mine. There have been many challenges along the way. When you put your daughter to bed crying at night and she wants to know who her biological parents are, and your son as a teenager gets caught up in the drug world, and a middle child that always seems to get left out. Also, Teresa was diagnosed with hepatitis C and had to go through 48 weeks of treatment. She was skin and bones. And my dad, which was my best friend, died of liver cancer. All of this happened within a few years. My family and my faith were taken a big hit. The battle with my son's drug addiction brought four years of stressful living in our house. And through, through God's word, we were able to make it through each day and each thing. And, and just to read his word today, I, I just, Habakkuk, I went to the first chapter, verse 2 through 5. And it's Habakkuk's complaint. And it sounded so much like what we were going through and what I, what I was in the middle of for those three to four years and never had anything in my life that was that devastating to think of uh, my family falling apart. Said Habakkuk's complaint said, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous and, the, and that, so that justice is perverted. And that was my complaint. That was me complaining. But then the Lord said what he, he had his answer, and his answer was, look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And God used that in my life more now so than, than before, but God said, Watch and be utterly amazed, Brian and Teresa, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. 
God gave us three healthy newborn babies. My daughter finally met her birth parents after six years of praying. Our middle son, Justin, is a part of the worship team here at Mission View. Teresa was completely cured of hepatitis C. And my dad knew Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I will see him again. As for my battle with my son, our battle with our son and his drug addiction, we are waiting for God to amaze us once again. An amazing God. It's not an easy thing for uh, anybody to stand up and give testimony, let alone the pain and the difficulties that, that we face in this life. Um, but God is faithful through it all. The title of our message today is True Family, and we're going to look at that in Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at true family and what that is all about. And we'll get to that in a moment. I want to, for exact, especially for those that might be newer to Mission View, and this is a, a new experience for you, I want to give you a few introductory thoughts in regards to uh, what we're doing here in the book of Mark, and also set the context for our passage today. Mark, John Mark is the writer of this book. He is writing to a Gentile Roman group which means that Gentile Roman group was looking for things like action. They were looking for power and authority. That's what spoke to the Roman Gentiles. These are the ones that brought you the gladiators. These are the ones that wanted action. And so Mark is writing things at a very fast pace and snippets of what, what Jesus Christ is all about, and he is showing that. Now, as we have proceeded through, as we continue to proceed through the book of Mark, we will see that to continue to develop. I do want you to know that as Brian and I preach through the book of Mark, we're going to be taking a new chapter each week, but we're not going to have time to be able to cover every verse in every chapter. So we're going to have the bulk of the passage, and we're going to try to cover that. But we're trusting that you will be able to uh, study that passage as well as we go along. Now let me give you kind of a, an oversight, a flyby of everything that's happened so far in the book of Mark. In chapter 1, Jesus is commissioned. He has uh, he's been baptized. He's been in the wilderness. And he has also been commissioned by the Father to preach a message of, of repent and believe. Repent and believe. And right after that takes place, we see immediately Jesus getting to work and we see at the end of chapter 1, all of a sudden he starts teaching. He goes into synagogues and he's teaching with authority. The religious leaders are like, who in the world is this guy? I mean, they're all listening to him. I mean, they're amazed. They're sitting there amazed. Maybe there was a little jealousy that they didn't react to uh, them that way. Uh, Jesus demanded that authority. We see that Jesus uh, heals Peter's, uh, Peter's mom. He drives out demons. They go into villages and preach the gospel. And we see him drive out more demons. Obviously, demon possession was a problem in that day. 
at the very end of chapter 1, we see a man with leprosy that is cured as well. In chapter 2, as Pastor Brian talked about last week, we saw a, a paralytic. We saw a person that uh, was brought by four friends, and we see him healed as well. And then we see Jesus have dinner with what he calls, or what the religious people called, sinners. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we didn't cover this. Jesus corrects the religiously-minded individuals, the religious leaders. Now, please understand that every time Jesus corrected them, they didn't exactly like being corrected. But Jesus, nonetheless, did his responsibility of helping them to see the truth. In chapter 3, the chapter we're going to cover, we're going to cover the latter part of the chapter, the first part, we see that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Guess what that does for the religious leaders? They're up in arms. How can a man do work on the Sabbath? And therefore, they start to plot how they're going to kill Christ, even at the beginning of the ministry. And then, and then in the next few verses, Jesus, once again, is casting out demons. Seems to be a popular thing. Now, as we look at this so far, as believers, there's a couple takeaways that we can apply, start to apply to ourselves. First of all, my hope is that each of us would not just go through the Gospels and just, oh, yeah, I heard that, I heard that, I heard that. As Brian said last week, we don't want to be familiar, just camp out on what we're familiar with. We're asking that the Spirit of God would show us anew who Christ is. Let me tell you a few lessons that I'm learning. First of all, Jesus was about people who needed a Savior. Jesus was about people who needed a savior. Notice how Jesus got personally involved in the lives of individuals. In this, we see that he genuinely, genuinely loves them. And as a result, people flock to him. Here's what we learn. People will flock to the one that they trust. Sometimes as Christians, we try to go in and we just try to share Christ with somebody. We don't have much of a relationship whatsoever. Please understand, trust gains a hearing. Trust gains a hearing, and Jesus had that. Now, Jesus also had his core, his circle of responsibility. It was the Jewish nation. And 80% of all of Jesus' time is spent with people that are far from God. All these Jews that have been kind of wandering from God, only having religion in name only, and really being distant from God. And 20% of Jesus' time was spent with God, the Father, alone, praying, or with his disciples in teaching. This is what we see so far. Now, I want you to know this is convicting for me as a pastor. Uh, historically, in my 28, 29 years of ministry, I got to say that 95% of my time has been spent with people that know Christ. Now, I love spending time with people that know Christ, but I believe I'm out of balance. I believe that this pastor has to change. I have to change. I need to see a greater percentage of time spent loving people that are far from God. And so I'm being honest with you that that's an area that I need to change. Here's the second thing that we observe in Christ's life. Jesus moved people from being religious to having a relationship. 
It was the religious leaders that were constantly coming to everything that Jesus did, but they weren't coming because they wanted to be learners. They weren't coming because they really wanted to know what the Messiah had to say to them. They didn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They they believed something very contrary, which we'll see today in our passage. In fact, what we see of these religious leaders is they were all about routine. They were all about ritual all about traditions, keeping the traditions. And as a result, they developed a spiritual high-mindedness with the rest of society, and they separated themselves so much so that they started calling people sinners. Remember last week when Jesus was having dinner with those sinners? That term came from the religious leaders. There was a separation I'm righteous, you're wrong, I want nothing to do with you. Can you see how their belief system got so messed up? Because that's never been the heart of God. It's never been the heart of God. It's always to go after those that are far from God. And what we see Jesus doing is he's teaching a new concept to these religious leaders and to the sinners. This is what he was teaching. It's not how good you are that qualifies you before God. Get that. It's not how good you are that qualifies you before God. But really, it's how bad you are that qualifies you before God. You say, Steve, well, that kind of goes contrary to what I've, I've always learned in my own faith. No, no, no. Hear what Jesus said last week. Remember when he said to the sinners, and to the religious leaders, what did he say? To the, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's only sick people, those that know that they're sinners, that need a physician. I came not to call the righteous, those that think they have it all together, but I have called the sinners. My friends, if you have come out of religion that's built on ritual and routines and traditions like I did as a kid, you need to realize that Jesus rejects this kind of religion. He doesn't want us to pretend that we're better than we really are because he knows the truth. He would rather have dinner with us knowing that we are sinners and he could show us why we need a Savior. So this is the context of our passage today. Now, in Mark chapter 3, we're going to look at what true family is all about. Now, in this chapter, we're going to see different aspects of family, some good, some not so good, and we're going to learn about that this morning. The first thing we're going to do is learn about the ministry family, which are those that wanted to be with Christ. This is the good family. Take a look at verse 13, what happens. Verse 13, chapter 3. And he went up on the mountain and called those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he also gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boganias, that is, the son of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we 
see the 12 men that he has picked, here's a couple things you need, a, a couple observations from this passage. First of all, we see a critical shift take place. Jesus has been doing ministry with like the masses, and along the way there's been a growing number of people that would call themselves disciples of Jesus, a larger group. And now Jesus has to handpick a group of men that would be instrumental in the spreading of the church. They don't understand this now, but after the resurrection, they would know that they were instrumental in spreading the church. Now he has to pick this group of people. This was such a serious decision in the book of Luke. It tells us that Jesus went up to the mountain the night before and he spent the entire night in prayer praying over these individuals. And this is the result of this is twofold. Number one, Jesus first exclusively picks his ministry family. He exclusively picks his ministry family. Now you might call this the draft day for the disciples. The draft day. Certainly many people wanted to be on Team Jesus. They wanted to be on his team. But Jesus doesn't give them the opportunity. Jesus picks his team based on the role that they would fulfill. Now history would prove that every one of the men that he picked would be absolutely instrumental in the advancement of the church, even Judas. Judas's role was to betray Jesus so that the act of redemption could be set into motion. He would then later be replaced, in a sense, by the apostle Paul. Judas would be the poser of the 12, and only Jude, Jesus would know that, and Judas would know as well. Now, by the way, I want you to know that you are an extension. If you are a believer in Christ, you now are an extension of this ministry family. This was the tight-knit group that was needed for the beginning of the church, but everybody that would believe after the resurrection, the family would grow, 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 and you, if you are a believer in Christ, you are an extension of that ministry family. This is what Paul said to, in Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, God saved us, and called us to a holy life because of his purpose and his grace. That speaks to his purpose in picking you. God has a purpose in your life. There is no mistake in God's economy. God has picked his team so that you would be at the right place amongst the right people at the right time so that you can be an influence on your circle of influence just like these disciples were to be at this time. Here's the second thing we learn in this passage. Jesus commissions his family, his ministry family, to preach. Now the word that is used here in giving off that message to preach the gospel, it means to make a public proclamation with such gravity, formality, and authority that the message must be heeded. Their life would be that message. Their words would be that message. Now, here's what's so funny about this situation. These guys absolutely, absolutely in that society had absolutely 
absolutely no credentials whatsoever. They were the motliest crew that you could have picked if you would have gone into that society and you were to pick the people that would be the transformers of society, you would not have picked them. They would have been considered the outcasts, the losers, the rejects, the ones that were all alone, as we sang about earlier. They would have been in that category. They were, of, they were untrained. They were unschooled. They were of a low-class society. From the world's perspective, they were a bunch of nobodies. But here's the deal. From God's perspective, they would be the leaders of the greatest missions movement this world has ever known. Unbelievable that God does this. Now, this makes me wonder. It makes me wonder, is there a greater role for you that the world cannot or will not ever recognize, but God does? Is there a greater role that God has for you? I believe so. I believe so because we're an extension of this ministry family. We move on in the passage and we see the biological family in verses 20 and 21. Take a look at what happens. Then he went home, talk about Jesus and his disciples, and they're kind of their home base and gathered together again. So that they, and I'm sorry, the, crowd, the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, and later in the passage it will say it's his mother and his brothers, when his family heard of it, they went to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. Translation crazy, loony. This is how they thought of Jesus at that time. Now, please see that Jesus' biological family, yeah, they're still loving people. They just don't understand what is going on. Now, Jesus' schedule had been a grueling schedule with his disciples. Now, we're not told what Jesus was doing, but if we go by the track record of that flyby I gave you, he was probably preaching, he was healing, demons were being cast out. This was his ministry, and his disciples were busy along with him. They were so busy that they didn't have any time to gather food. The word gets out of this profound ministry that's happening. They're not even eating. And Jesus' family comes from Nazareth to gather them up. Now, this was probably initiated by his brothers. We're told in a different passage that his brothers' names were James, Joseph, Judas, which is also a nickname for it, is Jude, and Simeon. And he also had sisters. So mama's probably come along to make sure that the boys don't do anything irrational. That's what mamas do. And so they're, they're coming along to collect him. I could see them walk along the road saying, oh, man, Jesus is at it again. What is wrong with him? It's like this guy has a Messiah complex or something. Yeah, he does because he is. But they didn't get it. Now, what's difficult here is that we don't want to see Jesus' family this way. I don't, I don't want to see, I, especially his mother, I don't want to see them with a lapse of faith or not understanding. But what it does is it's, it's a reminder to us. It reminds us that Jesus' family were sinners in need of a Savior. They were. They didn't get a special exemption. They were in need of a Savior. Now we continue on in the passage and we see another family develop 
in verses 22 through 30. I call it the religious family. Now, this religious family, I use the word family very loosely here because uh, the Jews had a religious heritage. It was an identity. It was like a family identity. Now, the Romans, whenever they took a census, they identified those that were Jews and those that were Gentiles, those that were in, Jew in Judaism, were considered a grouping, a people group, a family, so to speak. Well, it's their own family that is coming against Jesus, the religious family that's coming against Jesus, and Jesus is going to confront them with the harsh accusations that they spew at Christ. Look at the accusation that the religious family brings to Christ. It says this, And the scribes came down, verse 22, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. Now, here's the twofold accusation. Number one, Jesus is demon-possessed. Second, Jesus does his miracles by the power of Satan. Now, obviously, these are pretty harsh accusations. The word Beelzebub is just another name for demon, but the word actually means the lord of the dwelling place of evil. So this is what they're saying as Jesus. You are the Lord of the dwelling place of everything that's evil. That's who you are. Notice how Jesus responds to them. He uses logical arguments to refute it. The first argument is what I call the kingdom divided argument. Look at verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? Notice the questions he's asking. He wants them to think. If a, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, Jesus clearly shows the illogic of Satan being at war with himself if what they were saying was true. It's illogical. And so he refutes that. Then he moves on to another argument, which I call the strongman argument in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, in order to understand this argument, you need to know that the strong man here is Satan. And what he is saying here is that the strong man is Satan, and his house is the realm of sickness, it's the realm of, of sin, of demon possession, of death. Everything that they were battling against, the, the, Jesus and the disciples, is the realm of the strong man. And the only person that could actually rob the strong man, and this is a good robbery, in other words, take those that are enslaved within his house, the only one that can do that is somebody that is stronger than Satan. So Jesus is clearly making a case that he is stronger than Satan and that the work that he is doing of healing sickness and casting out demons is certainly not done by Satan himself. No, no, no. It's done by the stronger man. And my friends, we have the stronger man on our side. That's what we have. 
Then Jesus then turns to these religious leaders and he gives the harshest rebuke that I think someone could give. Take a look at what he says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Now, he uses that word child for a reason. I'll come back to it. And whatever blasphemies these children utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, what is Jesus saying to them? He's, there's in this grouping were people that were just investigating, and then there's the religious leaders. The, those that were investigating had the ignorance of a child. They really didn't know anything at all. They were far from God. They had been kept at arm's distance from the religion. And so he is saying, you know the sins of the ignorance, even those that would give a derogatory word towards God, take his name in vain, those kind of sins, they're going to be forgiven once they understand. But then it's almost as if he turns right to the religious leaders and he says, but for those that reject, defiantly are hostile towards God in the agenda of God, working through the Son of Man who is here on earth and starts to attribute his works to the work of Satan when they're really the work of the Spirit, they are on, on, on bad ground of, of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and they are entering into or, or threatened of guilty of eternal sin. He said, this is dangerous ground, guys. This is dangerous ground. Now, some people say, can this kind of sin still be done today? I don't know. I don't know. I've heard some theologians say no because Jesus was actually doing the work and they were attributing his direct works to that of Satan. I don't know, but here's what I want. I want us to steer clear of that. I want us to steer clear of that. This is the warning he gave these religious leaders. And then he concludes by bringing the ministry family and the biological family back together. Take a look at what happens in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brother? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here's my mother and my brother. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, in this teaching, Jesus has the religious leaders. He has those that are seeking out Christ. And he has his disciples. He's already dealt with his religious leaders and said that they're guilt, coming close to an unforgivable sin. But then he says, here's the deal. Here's my true family. My true family are those that are doing the will of God, those that are following me. I think it was meant to be motivational to those that were seeking, those that would hear what Christ was saying. I think he wanted them more than anything for them to enter, move from that position to being part of his family because his disciples were his family. And notice what the key distinction is. Those that do the will of the Father. You see, in every group, there's three categories. There's the religious-minded. They just grew up religious, and they're going to keep God at arm's distance, and it's all going to be external. There are going to be those that are interested. They're, they're 
inquisitive of Christ. But then there are going to be those that are true family, true disciples. What makes the distinction between all three is those that do the will of God. Say, Steve, what's the will of God? We know the will of God is the word of God. We know that the will of God is that we would start to do whatever the word of God says. We see it developing in these disciples. We know the will of God is that there would be a greater level of intimacy with God. We see that developing with the disciples. We know that the will of God is that we would have community with one, other, one another and that we would depend upon each other as Hebrews 10 talks about. We see that with the disciples. We know the will of God is that we would understand the gifts that God has given us according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. That we would understand that and that we would use them as tools for ministry. The disciples are beginning to understand that. We know it is the will of God that we steward our life, that in every aspect of our life, we give it up to him. We know the disciples are doing that. They gave up everything financially. They gave everything of their time. They gave all of their resources. They were stewarding their life to follow after Christ. They got it. They got what it was all about. That's the will of God. They know, we know that the will of God is that we share our grace story with those that are far from God. The disciples are understanding it because they're preaching it. They're preaching it. And it only brings a question for you and I today is are we living out the will of God? Are we acting as a true family? Or are we just being religious? Or are we just being inquisitive? Or are we really, really, doing the will of God. As I back away from this chapter and this passage, there's a couple words of encouragement I want to give to you. Here's number one. The church is your true family. My friends, we will have people in our own biological family turn on us. They will do some really bad stuff. There will be some horrendous mistakes that are going to be made along the way. And I want you to know your family your family is there for you. We need to be there for one another. As I look at the New Testament, I look, I look and the family, our family is to be devoted to each other. We are to hold each other accountable. We're to encourage each other. We're to push each other to grow in God's word. We're to live sacrificially be with each other. We're to help each other when somebody's in need. We're to worship our great God with all of our heart. We're to engage in the mission of God. This is what true family is all about. And please know that you, if you are a disciple of Christ, you have an identity. You're no longer alone. You're no longer a reject. You're none of those things. You are family. What an awesome thing. What an awesome thing that we have a place to belong. Number two, the stronger man is on our side. The stronger man is on our side. Yes, the strong man, the enemy, the Satan, is still on the loose. 
But the other fact is that we serve the one who is stronger. Though Satan is in the realm of the house of bondage and sin and sickness and death, we know that Jesus is in the ministry of releasing those that are in bondage. But please know that Satan is not just going to give up without a fight. He is going to fight with all kinds of spiritual warfare. This is why Jesus prayed for his own disciples after his departure. Just before he departed, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. I don't want you to take them out of the fight, Father. I don't want you to take them out of the fight, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Would you protect them? Because there's going to be all out hell against them because the enemy is relentless. He constantly comes at us again and again and again and again. Protect them. Protect them from the evil one. I ask that you do that. And my friends, we live in a very wicked world. All we got to do is look all around us. We look in our community. We look across the ocean. We see wickedness all around us. But we're not to throw up our hands and say, oh, it's doom and gloom. If anything, we should be excited because we get to engage in the warfare as a part of God's ministry family. 2 Corinthians, we are told this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises against the knowledge of God and take everything captive to obey Christ. We do that in the power of Christ. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we're to put on the whole armor of God, that we're to stand strong in the Lord. We're also told in Ephesians 6 that the biggest and greatest tool of warfare that we have is prayer. We are told this in Ephesians 6, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I felt so convicted as I studied this passage that I felt like we needed to have a call to prayer. On November 2nd, we're going to have a call to prayer at the offices from 6 to 7.15. We're not going to cancel youth ministry. We're going to, they're, they're going to have their own time of prayer. I'm going to ask Nick that he would, they're going to do that in their own way. They're going to have a service project. They'll pray for other people. We're not going to ask the one community group that goes that night. We're just going to ask that you focus on some prayer as well. But for the, the rest of us, we're going to ask that you gather and we need to uplift each other because there's family members that we need, in a sense, four others to come alongside of us as we take our paralytic before Christ, before him in prayer. We need to do that. We need to do it with each other. We need to do it. We need to pray for our nation. There's an election that following Tuesday. We need to pray that God would move in our nation. We need to pray for Mission View. I don't want to be content. I don't want to just say, okay, we got a church. Now we got some people. Let's just do church. No, we're on a mission, and we need to pray that the spiritual warfare would be done, and it would be done through our people. If you can pray, I would ask that you make it a priority to come to the offices. Park across the street. You'll be fine, and we will, we will direct you only an hour and 15 minutes. Here's the last encouragement. The story isn't over concerning our biological family. Get this. The story is not over concerning our biological family. Though we see the unbelief of Jesus' biological family here 
at the beginning of the ministry, I believe that since Jesus was sovereign, he saw the end of the story. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that his brothers and his sisters would be there after the resurrection. In the book of Acts, it's a beautiful passage. Acts 1.14 says this, They all joined together in constant prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were all together. They were all there. We know from history that Jude and James wrote a book in the New Testament. We know that James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was a dynamic leader, and God did profound things through Jesus' own family. The miracle isn't done yet. There is still a future work. The story isn't over. God is doing something. And my friends, I'm speaking to some that are absolutely brokenhearted because you have a son, you have a daughter, you have a mom, you have a dad, you have somebody in your family that you care desperately for. Pray. Do your work of pray, but also believe that the work isn't done yet. Because I will tell you this, God's job is to do what he does best. He performs miracles. Today, we started with the story of a family that struggled. Brian and Teresa, thank you so much for sharing. But I want to end with a miracle of God. I've asked Justin to come and share just for a few minutes. Justin. Dear mom and dad. You both have been through so much. Your marriage has had its ups and downs, trials and tribulations, conflicts followed by resolution. I want to explain the best that I can where in my heart the two of you truly lie. I know I've explained to you before the pride that I take in being able to call both of you my parents. But now I have an opportunity to show you in front of the whole congregation that what I've said is true and without hesitation. It's a good thing I wrote all this down because honestly I could go on for hours about how much you guys mean to me. But first, I'd like to say that no matter what anyone tells you in the past, present, or the future, you guys have succeeded as parents and there's nothing you could have done any better. As parents, you're more than just providers and protectors. You're also role models and God has truly blessed Josh, Kayla, and I with some amazing role models. When I was young, I never really understood how significant it was that you two were able to band together as a team in times of struggle and heartache, many times caused by myself. They always say that the ones that you love the most can also hurt you the most. And as an adult, I now see the kind of pain and misery people put themselves through by simply not knowing how to love. You guys have mastered that. I don't know anyone who's gone through as much as you two and been able to come out the other side genuinely stronger and truly closer to each other. And I believe it's because you guys hold the key. You have a secret weapon that's honestly not a secret or a weapon, considering weapons are usually for destruction. This secret weapon has been at the center of your marriage since before the day I was born. This key that you hold is God. And I've been trying harder now than ever to put God at the center of my life, as both of you have. Honestly, it's a, it's a struggle for me, and I'm not afraid to admit it. 
sin and temptation are both very powerful, but I know that my God is stronger, and I know that because of what I've seen in you. This is my struggle. I have failed many times, and I will continue to fail, but I will not give up, because neither of you ever gave up on me or each other, because God has been the glue to keep you strong enough to keep pushing forward together. Dad, you've been my best friend for as long as I can remember. And I want to tell you now that one day, if I'm ever blessed enough to get married, you will be my best man. Because when I think about the title, best man, only one person comes to mind. You're the best man I know in every aspect of the term. But I will say that you will never get the opportunity to play the role as my best man unless I can meet a woman like the one that you wake up to every morning, the woman that I get to call my mother. You two are truly the best, and that's why you are meant for each other. 